Hey, good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians 1. We're going to have some verses on the screen, but if you have a Bible with you or on a device, I would love for you to open that up so you can take some notes, highlight a few things, so you can go back to it throughout the week. What you just saw on the screen was our friend Anna Burroughs, and what I've encouraged and challenged a few people to do in this series on Philippians is to memorize or spend time in the Christ hymn, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let it have its way with you, and then to articulate how God reveals himself to you through it. So I'm encouraging the whole church. Like, this is a piece of scripture I think you need to know. It tells you so much about Jesus, impacts the way you, you live, the way we live. Uh, I, I don't know if I should say welcome to fall in Memphis or not. Uh, in a way, maybe it may feel like the fall this week. Maybe you saw on social media this thing that in Memphis, there are 12 seasons of the year. There's winter, full spring, then you get a second winter, then a spring of deception, then a third winter, then there is the pollening, then there's an actual winter, a summer, hell's front porch, then fake, <laughs> fake fall, then you get a second summer, which is what we've experienced the last couple of days, and then you get the real fall, which hopefully will come this week. Philippians chapter 1, 3 through 11. 3 through 8 is one, it's just one sentence in the Greek. This happens sometimes in the Greek, happens in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul starts writing, and it's not that he's like one big piece of run-on sentence. It's just he's holding together a big idea. So 3 through 8 is all one idea that Paul is presenting to the church. And here's how it goes. Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God every time I remember. Repeat after me, I remember. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. And it is right for me to think, or maybe a better way to say this uh, is it is right for me to feel. So there's this feeling that Paul is expressing. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. Or some of your versions have that uh, he holds them in their heart. Both are true. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long or yearn for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that on the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and the praise of God. And the whole church said, Amen. So this is an introduction to the book of Philippians, this letter of Philippians. And this is something that the church would have heard. They wouldn't have read it. They would have heard it. Most letters would have been uh, received by a church, and then there's someone who in church, as the church gathered together, the people were together, somebody would stand up and read. I'm sure there was both excitement and anxiety when the churches in Philippi or any other place heard that a new letter from Paul had come in that week, and that when they got together on the Sunday in a house, they would all get together and they would hear this word, they would hear this letter that had come from Paul. I don't know how you feel today, I don't know how often you check your mailbox, and, and, and when you do, if you know that what you're about to get, you're just throwing away, like, I mean, there's so much stuff that comes in now, like vote for me postcards, and mortgage and insurance, you know, stuff, and, and, and debt reduction programs, and you get all this other stuff that almost goes straight in the trash can, but every once in a while, you check the mail, and there's a handwritten note and you open it up, and it just makes somebody's day. So a couple of years ago, I started writing a lot more handwritten notes. 
I just wanted to create a discipline in my life to write more handwritten notes, thank you notes or birthday notes or something to people. And the response over the last couple of years has been so great. Not that I did it for a response, but there seems to be genuine excitement when someone gets something in the mail. So late July, I went to Kathy, our assistant here, and I went to Kathy and said, hey, Kathy, here's just an idea I have. I would like to start sending for the staff to send birthday cards to every member in the church. So do you mind doing a little research to see uh, uh, how much are they? Because when I go to like buy a, a Father's Day card, like for my dad, like it is, uh, can you, I mean, cards are so expensive these days. And I love the church, but I don't know if you're worth $10 a card, if that's what it was going to come out to, you know what I'm saying? So uh, the next three days go by, and Kathy comes in, and she's like, the cards arrived. And I was like, oh, well, Kathy did research, and then she acted on it, which is Kathy often does, does a great job. So, so some of you, it, like, there, there's kind of a buzz, like, yeah, we have started sending happy birthday cards. But when we sat down as a staff to do this, you should have seen the first staff meeting, because... Everyone was kind of looking at each other like, are you just going to put your name on there or are you going to start writing things? Because if you start writing things like, happy birthday, hope you have a great day, happy second birthday, happy 92nd birthday, then, then the bar has been raised for everyone else because you don't want to be the one person who's just signing your name, right? So usually there's a little note on there. Now for those of you who have birthdays in March, April, and May, let's see how the staff's doing next spring, Okay. And if there's just a stamp that says Sycamore View staff, just know it's coming from the bottom of our hearts, all right? There's something fun about, like, getting mail. So just imagine the excitement in the church when they get this letter, right? Paul's writing, writing to them, and he's writing from prison. He's in prison, yet all he's thinking about is the heart of God and the gospel and the churches that he serves. So he writes this letter to the churches of Philippi, and they get it, and they open it up. And in verse 3, it says... I thank my God every time I remember you. Now, <clears throat> back in high school, early on in youth group days, like there were a few verses I'd memorized as growing up in church, but this is when I memorized so that whenever I was at a youth event or some church event, other youth groups were there and I was sitting next to a girl who I thought was kind of cute, I would quote this to her. I was like, hey girl, Philippians 1-3, I thank my God every time I remember you and I just want you to know I'm thanking God a whole lot right now because I think about you all the time. And so, Truett, I hope you're taking notes of the game your dad used to have, all right, back in the days, all right? Some things I'm not super proud of, but Paul's not writing with a girl in mind. He's writing with a church in mind. I thank my God every time I remember you. Remember is something that shows up, especially in the Psalms in the Old Testament. It was a discipline of how you remember and how you recite. And sometimes we don't think about the power of memory until we or someone we know begins to lose their memory. And then we reflect back on the power of memory. And especially back then when you didn't have a written Bible in your home, it was memory that kept the gospel alive in your heart. And for Paul, he was raised a good Jew. And Paul was, Paul was probably raised in a way where he still prayed the hours of the day, which could be a good discipline for some of you who are struggling in your prayer life. Paul probably prayed around 9 a.m. and around noon and around 3 p.m. It was just like clockwork. It's what he would do. And what he's letting the church in Philippi know is that when I go into the presence of God at 9, or at noon or at three when I go and I start thinking about what God has done in my life I give thanks for you and then Paul tells him the emotion he prays with I thank my God every time I remember you and I when I pray it is with joy if you ever ask me Josh what can I pray for you there's a really good response a really good chance my response has been I need you to pray for God to protect my joy right? I've been a believer for years if the enemy of Satan can take joy from us, he can take witness from us. Like joy needs to be protected at all costs. And Paul says, I pray with, with joy. 
at least four times a week, I'm in this room praying for ministers, praying for elders, and this is something I pray every time I lift up the leaders in this church, is that God would help them to live and to love and to lead from a place of joy. So for Paul, he's letting them know that when I pray for you, it's not just a chore, it's not just a checklist, like when I pray for you, it is with joy of the connection we have in and through Jesus. There's one, uh, one guy, Gerald Hawthorne, and he says this about joy. He says, for Paul, joy is more than a mood or an emotion. Joy is an understanding of existence that encompasses both elation and depression, that can accept with creative submission events which brings delight or dismay. And I love this because joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all things. I mean, joy can coexist. Joy can coexist with grief, and joy can coexist with depression, and joy can coexist with anxiety, and joy can coexist with relational hurt and pain. And joy is what helps lifts us up to remind us that God is hovering over it all. And Paul wants them to know in my struggles, I'm writing to you from prison, I'm writing to you with great joy. Now back then, there's a good chance that Paul, when he was in prison, it's not that he had been sentenced to two years or three years or five years. It's that he's in a place waiting to know what, what's going to happen to him. In some ways in prison, it's maybe better for you to know, like I'm in here for six months or I'm in here for six years. But then waiting, not knowing what would happen in a place where you weren't taken care of at all. Places didn't care if you rotted away in prison. So it was up to churches and friends to help support you while you were in prison and for him to be in prison with God on his mind, with the gospel in his heart, asking for a way that he could write letters to churches to encourage him. And when he did, even from prison, he is saying, right here in this place, I'm writing to you with great joy. So <clears throat> let's geek out just for a moment, all right? Because for verses 3 through 11, I want to show you just a little part of Paul's vocabulary. Like words Paul used a lot. Like most of us have certain words or vocabulary. Like, like it's just part of who we are. And I want to show you about seven words that Paul uses quite a bit. Like they're Pauline, like they're Paul words. And all these words show up in the introduction to, to this letter of Philippians. Joy is not so much a Paul word, but it is a word that shows up a lot in Philippians, 14 times. So as you see on the screen, if you go to the, um, yeah, go ahead and go to the next slide. And one more. Thank you so much. Uh, on the left side, you have Paul. On the right side's New Testament, if you can see the screen. And just in Philippians alone, it uses joy 14 times. The New Testament uses joy 68 times. It shows up a lot in Philippians. And let me show you a few words that, that are very Paul words. This next one right here is fellowship. Fellowship is a word Paul uses a lot. It, it, usually when it shows up in the New Testament, it's Paul who is using it. Now, in our culture and, and just the broad and like church cultures, a lot of times the way we use fellowship may be something like this. Like, hey, when we get together tonight as our life group or a Bible class, we're just going to fellowship, meaning that we're not going to have a big Bible study. There's not going to be a lot of substance. We're just going to come together and hang out. Right? Paul in the early church would never use fellowship in a way of, hey, we're just going to come together and hang out. Fellowship was about connecting the heart, the mind, the soul. It was about connecting us to God and to each other. Like it was a deep connection that would happen in and through the church. 
Gospel is a word that Paul uses a lot. 60 of the 78 times it's used in the New Testament, it's Paul who is using it. And this was a Roman word. Rome would talk about they were good news. They were gospel to the world. And Paul took gospel and Paul's like, no, Rome is not the good news the world needs. Jesus is the good news the world needs. The next word, if you show it, the gospel, and then the one after that, feel. Feel is a, a way to think about, for Paul, being a Christian, walking with Christ, wasn't robotic. It wasn't just kind of going through the motions. Like, it was something that had feeling. For Paul, it was something you could feel. And he writes about this in the introduction to this church. Yearn or longing doesn't show up many times in the New Testament, but almost every time it does, it's Paul who uses it. And this yearning or longing isn't just for Paul to be connected to the church in Philippi or for them to be connected to him. It was this yearning and longing for people to be connected to Christ, for people to be connected to the heart of God. You have a word overflow that shows up in the New Testament. And this is a word that is mostly a Paul word. 26 of the 39 times. And this overflow is the idea of try to find the largest storehouse you can find. And then imagine trying to place the grace or love of God in it, and there's nothing you could find that could contain it. Like, it is going to overflow. And this is what Paul wanted for people, like for the love of God to be so full in your heart, it just overflows into everything. And the last word is just knowledge. This is a word that shows up 20 times in the New Testament. 15 is from Paul. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, the way they would use knowledge is that knowledge was to help you solve mysteries about the gods in the world. Like, it was to help you, give you revelation about how the gods function. But the way Paul uses knowledge is knowledge is meant to lead to practical action. So knowledge was not about cynicism or skepticism so that you could enter into arguments and debates. Knowledge was to teach you about God or faith and then to act on whatever it is you have been taught. Knowledge was to lead to practical action. So these words right here that form and shape a lot of Paul's thought, they all show up in the introduction to Philippians. Philippians 1, 3 through 11, it's like Paul is sharing all it is he believes about who God is and what he wants for the church, he states it in just a few verses. Now, let's put this in the paradigm real quick. And for some of you, maybe in your prayer life, what you need right now is just a paradigm. Maybe your prayer life is somewhat dry and you just need maybe a fresh way to approach the heart of God. One way to talk about Philippians 3 through 1, 3 through 11 is just expressions. There's an expression of gratitude an expression of love and affection, and then an expression of prayer. So maybe this is a paradigm for you to think about your life with God is when you come before the presence of God, beginning in a place of gratitude can be really good for you. Maybe love and affection that you want to flow from you, or maybe it's to receive the love and affection that flows from God into your life. And then this expression of prayer. So think about what this could look like for you and your family as spouses pray for each other, as parents pray for children, as we pray for our neighbors or our co-workers, that maybe we come before God and there's an expression of gratitude, an expression of, God, how can I show love to those around me? And then prayer. Now I want you to think about prayer in verses 9 through 11. And these are three verses that I've prayed over this church now for months. 
And one thing and one challenge I want to give you is sometimes the best thing for you to do with people is not just to say, I will pray for you or I am praying for you. It's to go ahead and share what it is you're praying for them. Paul's so good at this. A lot of times Paul doesn't say, I'm praying for you. Paul lets them know what it is he prays. So in verse 9 through 11, it's not Paul just saying, hey, church in Philippi, hey, I pray for you. It's I want you to know the words I'm taking before God while I pray. Try it this week with someone in your life. Don't just say, I'm praying for you. Write them a sentence or two of what it is you're praying for. Like here, as I take you before God, here's what I'm praying. Here's what I'm lifting up before God. In this introduction, Paul uses this word koinonia or fellowship, or in some of your versions, it shows up as sharing, and he uses it twice. And so in Philippians 1, verses 5, and again in verse 7, it says, because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now, and then in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart, for all of you share in God's grace with me. Now, one difference between Paul and the church of Philippi and Paul and a lot of other churches is there are a lot of letters Paul writes in which it sounds like I am the father and you are the children, like you are my children in the faith, but not the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi he saw as a partner. Like it wasn't that you are my children in faith, is that we are partners, we share in this together, which is how it should be, right? We share in this together. So let's talk about Sycamore View just for a moment. I thought this would be a good place just to let you know a little bit about who we are. So we've done the last few weeks, we've looked at a few numbers just to reveal to us kind of who we are right now in 2022, kind of going through COVID, just who we are, some things that we can see, some numbers we can see to track, to just see how are we doing at helping connect people to God and how are we doing and connecting people to each other. So let me just toss a few at you. Now, here's the thing. Any church that says they don't care about attendance and budget, they look at attendance and budget, all right? They do. Our attendance in the month of August, we averaged 437 in-person attendees, and we had just short of 300 people who are with us every Sunday on a screen or a device. COVID has messed up how churches will track attendance for the rest of our lives. So we don't know exactly how many people are with us, but I know right now, on screens are people in hospital rooms, and I know who the, some of them are. People in vacation homes, people who are driving on the road. Like, live stream, for some people, maybe it can be a lazy way to go to church. For some people, it is a great way to stay connected with people you love. We know since, since 2018, we've had just over 200 families, 200 people place membership with us, 117 family units. And of those 117, 84 are still connected to us which lets us know there are a few people who have placed membership with us in the last few, few years who have either moved out of town or maybe they've transitioned to another church or maybe they're not going to church right now. And this lets us know there are some things we are doing to help people connect to the body and there's some things we can do better to help those who come to us, that God brings to us, to help them connect in deeper ways. We know we are a church in which our membership has people coming from 31 different zip codes. I didn't know there were 31 zip codes in the state of Tennessee, all right? So it lets us know there are people who are driving a long ways away 
right, to come to be a part of the Sycamore View family. And it also lets us know that when it comes to the mission and the vision and the core values that we are trying to live out, think about the impact our church has in 31 different zip codes that they live in, that they work in, that they're trying to share the love of God in some kind of way with. We're truly a multi-generational church. Now we know that the age group under 11, that is our largest age group in the life of this church. The second most is ages 26 to 35. And we have people represented in every, we have five different generations of people who are a part of this church. Now let me throw up this next slide. And I just held all this together in just one slide. So I know some of these words may be a little smaller. But we, we just wanted to see about our campus usage. What are some things that we could share with the church about how our campus is used every week? And here are some things we know. There are around 1,600 people who are on our campus every week. We know our building is used 64 plus hours a week, meaning 9 to 10 hours a day, all seven days, something is happening on the life of our campus. The most frequent users are the staff, Boys and Girls Club, the uh, Parents Day Out program, and once a week users are also Celebrate Recovery, a Chinese church that meets here on Friday nights, a business group of leaders who meets, they meet here on Wednesday mornings, a ladies Bible class, and a couple of different, we just call it the basketball guys, and we, and guys, I mean it really is men who are coming to play basketball multiple times, and our campus is, is used for that. So here's the thing, there are sometimes people think about the church and they say, if I'm giving on a Sunday, it's just going to brick and mortar. It's just not a good argument you can use about the Sycamore View Church. Because our 11-acre campus is open almost every day of the week and things are happening on our campus and fruit's coming through it and there's connection because people in the community need a hub where certain things can happen. And it's an amazing thing when the church sees himself as a hub. And I like the phrase that we use sometimes around here that our campus will wear out, our campus will not rust out. It's going to wear out. And a few things just about giving. 2022, our giving is on pace with the previous five years. We know this year we have more people giving, but less that is coming in. We have a weekly contribution of a little over $20,000. And this has been a challenging year for so many of us with inflation and interest rates that are high, with gas and grocery prices that are just ridiculous, right? With portfolios that are crumbling. My goal of retiring at the age of 48, probably, it's probably not going to happen anymore, all right? <clears throat> probably not going to happen. But I just want to say thank you for the different ways, many different ways we share in the gospel together. I'm so grateful for the staff that God has assembled here. And I believe on our staff, like there is collaboration and mutual respect and fun. There's a lot of laughter when we're in the hallways and in offices together throughout the week. And that we have a staff of people who want to become better leaders and they want to be led. And I'm grateful for the elders that God has raised up in this church. Men who first and foremost love God and from that want to be good leaders in how they love other people. You know, one interesting thing in the New Testament is you never have the name of an elder appear. 
You have names of evangelists and male and female names of deacons and male and female members whose names are shared, but never the name of an elder. And this is not to minimize the position of eldership at all. It's, it's all over the pages. Elders who are called by God, it's like elders were called by God, just have your feet on the ground and you were working within a church that God has called you to love. And, and, and it, so it wasn't about power or prestige or, or their name. It was just, man, they were on the ground, just loving churches, caring for hearts. And it's what God has done with leaders right here in this church. But I think the sign of a healthy or healthier culture in a church isn't that the church is trying to prop up leaders to do the work of God, but the leaders are trying to prop up and launch the church for the mission of God. So the way we think about mission, vision, and core values here isn't that the church is helping to support the ministers or elders to, to go do the work of God and proclaim the gospel, but that we are trying to equip the church to do this because we share in the gospel together. So in Philippians 3, 3, 11, Paul prays with a lot of emotion. He talks about joy. He talks about confidence. He talks about how he's longing and yearning. And in verse 9 through 11... The prayer that Paul prays is that love will overflow. And the way Paul prays is that you will stay so close to the heart of God that you will make the best decisions that can honor God in your life and that you will be the best people that God has called you to be. And the way Paul prays is that the church would take seriously what it means to be holy and blameless in the sight of God. Holy and blameless. And this holy and blameless that shows up there at the end of verse 10, this can be a really difficult word to translate in the Greek. So there are two different ways to think about this, two different images. One is, there's some who argue that it's a compound word that literally means sun-tested or sun-judged. So in the first century culture, you would have these sometimes careless sculptors who would find a piece of blemished stone and they would like work this piece of art with it and then they would put wax in the crevices or the broken parts and the cracks. They would put wax and then they would paint it in a way to try to cover up all the blemishes. But once that piece of art was tested by the sun, the wax would melt and the paint would peel and the blemishes would be shown for what they really are. So one way to think about being holy and blameless before God is the sun shines in our lives and kind of melts away all the different masks we put on and we are laid bare before God, all of our blemishes, and God loves us anyway. And God loves us anyway. Max Lucado wrote a book 20 years ago in which he had this one line. It says, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. So to be pure and holy before God is laid bare, knowing God loves us anyway and that God wants us closer to his heart. Now, a second way some people think about holy and blameless is it could mean a word that meant like being sifted, where all the foreign matter is being extracted until all that is left is what is pure and blameless. And it's kind of neat, like it's kind of cool, like thinking about God sifting our hearts, sifting the heart of the church, right? getting rid of everything that doesn't reflect who God is so that we can be pure, pure, pure and blameless. And that this pure and holy and blameless isn't something that waits until we die. It's something we get to pursue now. So over the next few minutes, 
We've just created a five, seven, eight-minute time just for connection to God. There's communion and there's prayer. And some people think maybe you can't blend acts of worship, but we love the idea of just creating a few minutes where this is time just for God to work on us. We, we, we don't manuscript what this looks like. We just invite people to tables because our God moves to us and we move to God. And then we have prayer throughout this room. We'll have prayer leaders. If you want to gather with other people and pray, you can do that just as a church, just for a few minutes. We want to be in a moment where we are pursuing the heart of God and we know how much God is pursuing us. So I'm going to lead a prayer. You're invited to go to one of our six tables to receive the bread and the cup. And then prayer will remain for a few minutes as we cover you with a song and as we just pursue the heart of God together. Can I ask our shepherds to go to places to receive people for prayer? I think Tommy's in the back and Stoney's going to be up front if there's anything we can do for you. And I'm going to be right up here to my left to receive you. If there's anything we can pray for you, we're here for you. Will you stand together? And if you close your eyes and bow your heads, and if you're willing, just open your hands where you are. Just receive this as a word from God, a blessing from God. This is our prayer. That your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. And Jesus, for laying down your life so that we could have life today, we give you thanks. Will you sift us in the next few moments that everything that doesn't reflect of you will either uh, fall away, be removed, or be brought into the light so that we can deal with it, we can place it in your hands, so that we can be pure and blameless as we live out our life with you this week. Through Christ we pray, and the church said, Amen. You're invited to one of our tables to receive the bread and the cup.